Welcome to Rewide, a podcast that brings to you cutting-edge ideas on how to create a just economy and society. We'll have conversations with policymakers and activists at the forefront of efforts to transform our society. I am Duma Bogule, an economist and financial journalist. And I'm Isabel Fry, a lawyer and social justice activist. Together, we want to provide you with information and insights so that you can have meaningful debates in your spaces and communities. In this episode, we are joined by Bursisa Berko and we ask the question, can South Africa reimagine fiscal policy in the wake of COVID-19? Does South Africa need more austerity or a fiscal stimulus? The question of austerity in a constitutional democracy has always fascinated me. So the social economic rights in the Constitution are justiciable, and that was found in the certification judgment shortly after the final Constitution was adopted. In that judgment, it was held that although budgeting and the implementation of socioeconomic rights is an executive uh, function, that of government, the courts and the judiciary actually have a right to intervene if they find that the allocation of budget is not reasonable. So the question is, in terms of separation of government, to what extent is the judiciary empowered as a non-elected body of non-economists to intervene in allocating basically state expenditure? So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, we know that within the Constitution, there's an obligation on the state to make maximum uh, resources available for the allocation of, of money to government uh, functions. Now, when you're looking at the raising of revenue for the state, that includes both fiscal policy and monetary policy. So on the fiscal policy side, many people have argued that we, by cutting corporate taxes, for instance, or by not introducing a wealth tax, the state is certainly not exploring the avenues to make maximum resources available. On the other hand, we're looking at the question of, of monetary policy, as we did uh, in our previous episode, and the, the question then emerges as well, can the state not be doing more? There's another aspect in terms of the jurisprudence, which says that the state could look at international agencies and partners uh, in terms of overseas development aid in order to make more money available. And that's, that's another argument that we're not going to touch on today. Today, what we're going to be looking at is the question of austerity budgeting in a constitutional democracy, in a framework where human rights are meant to be prioritized and progressively realized rather than uh, regressively diminished. Now, the state in terms of jurisprudence is meant to be able to justify when they are not advancing rights. We found that in recent years, budgets have been dubbed austerity budgets, which means that the state expenditure is not growing. Now, the question is, what does an austerity budget mean? And apart from looking at the constitutional imperatives, why does this not make sense for us in South Africa? So this will be the conversation today. Busi Saberko, welcome. You are a researcher at the Institute for Economic Justice. You hold a master's in political economy from SOAS at the University of London. And you have a fascination and an expertise in macroeconomic policy. Yes, I do. Thank you. Welcome. Welcome, Busi. Thank you for having me. Um, I'll just start off with a brief definition of austerity. Austerity refers to government policies, tax increases and budget cuts that are meant to reduce the budget deficit and the debt-to-GDP ratio. Such policies target a primary surplus, which is revenue minus non-interest expenditure, that will be used to reduce the debt. The people who believe in austerity accept that it will have a negative impact on the economy, but they say that the austerity policies will result in an increase in private sector confidence, which will offset the negative impact on the economy. This is what is called the expansionary austerity argument. So the finance minister says that we are in a debt crisis. Since February, he has announced austerity measures of more than $600 billion. They comprise budget cuts of $261 billion that were made during the February budget. These included public sector wage bill cuts of $161 billion and further cuts of $100 billion to national and provincial governments. In the emergency budget in June, he announced budget cuts of $101 billion for the 2020-21 financial year 
And then these cuts cancelled out the fiscal stimulus that had been announced by the president of 500 billion. He also announced tax increases and budget cuts of 250 billion rands for 2021 to 2022 and 2022 to 2023 financial years. And there will be further austerity measures for the 2023 to 2024 financial year when the economy is expected to achieve a primary surplus. So the argument against austerity is that I've got a quote here from the British economist Keynes. He said, you will never balance the budget through measures which reduce national income. The chancellor would simply be chasing his own tail. So if you look after unemployment, the budget will look after itself. So what we want to say, debate today, is that the other view says a national budget does not operate like a company or a household budget. A household cannot issue its own currency. A sovereign state that issues its own currency cannot fail to meet its obligations in its own currency unless it chooses to do so. In a household, there is an independence between income and expenditure, but at the level of the economy, total expenditure equals total income. In a household, you can balance the budget by cutting your expenses, but in a household, you wouldn't cut expenditure if you knew that it would also result in a loss of income. So that is what happens in the level of a country. If the government cuts expenditure, it results in a drop of GDP and a rising debt-to-GDP ratio. Welcome, Busi. Um, we've tried to summarize the issues at the level of the constitution and at the level of economics. You had a paper that you wrote about austerity before COVID. Um, can you perhaps just tell us a little bit about the paper? You looked at the five years, if I remember, from until 2019. So so just explain what were the main findings in the paper. And in a way that non-economists can understand. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. So I just want to start off by saying that austerity is functioning in sort of like the global debate about what is the function of government budgets in our economic um, thinkings. So after the financial crisis, a lot of governments initially inputted stimulus into the economy. So they spent more um, to try and buffer against the financial crisis. But then after that, they were also worried about this increasing expenditure. And so a lot of governments subsequently implemented austerity. Similarly, in South Africa, after the financial crisis, we actually did implement fiscal stimulus. But then a couple of years later, and the earliest time that people were saying that austerity is being implemented being 2012 in South Africa already. So so you can imagine. So immediately after the financial crisis, everyone spends that year, 20, 2008, 2009, everyone is just pumping in money into the economy, trying to recover. And then 2010, everyone is like, we need to cut back. Um, so it's happening within this global architecture of neoliberalism. And that's what austerity does. It reinforces um, sort of neoliberalism. And to define what neoliberalism is, it's sort of the world order that we currently live in, which uh, values the small state approach, right? So when we when we think about the wage bill in, in itself, we must also think about what are we saying about the role of the state? And so it functions within that. And small state and neoliberal economics is what's desired. It is what we must aim for. And surplus is what we must aim for. Not that surplus is necessarily a bad thing, but the question is, what is the cost of that surplus? And so in South Africa, we'll, we would say that since 2014-15, the Budget Justice Coalition in particular has been arguing that the state has been implementing austerity. And how we've defined this, and austerity is defined in many ways. I'm always upset when people reduce it to just like, tax increases or expenditure cuts, because I do think that it's it's more nuanced than that. And in South Africa, the non-interest expenditure, which is expenditure on, on basically everything that is not debt, has been declining per capita. So healthcare spend per uninsured person over the last five years has declined, right? And now we find ourselves in a pandemic when we've been saying that healthcare expenditure is not keeping up, first of all, with inflation. Medical price inflation is higher than normal inflation. So it can't just grow, our health budget can't just grow at the normal inflation. It must actually grow more than that, particularly given the inequalities in our country. So that's one of the things that we highlighted, what I highlight in this paper is how healthcare spend per uninsured person over time has declined. Similarly with education, over the last decade, per learner spend has been declining. Right. So the, the when you look at the budget itself at a high level, it looks like it's increasing. But then you must also remember that debt servicing costs have been the fastest growing costs of our budget. 
So that's growing at 8.8% over a couple of years, but everything else is like growing just like below population growth and below inflation when you take into account those two important factors. And as of the 2019 budget, what we saw is that the government was proposing a net cut of 48 billion over the next three years. And people say that that's not austerity because the budget looks like it's growing in nominal terms. But when you actually look at it, what it's supposed to be growing in nominal terms, and when you look at inflation, you realize that there were going to be net cuts of 48 billion anyway, as of the February budget. Those are big numbers. When it comes to the question of the available resources, however, the counter argument to what you've just put out, and this is one that many people make who are part of the orthodox sort of school of economists, is that you can't be reckless. If you're going to have to service debts, something has to give. And in as much as household economies, as Duma was referring to, you cut your food, sadly, when that's the, that's the one variable that you can cut. So it seems that orthodox economists are meaning that in order to meet our debts, we need to cut the, the kind of soft spending, the, the health care and um, education and things like that. Now, why does that not make sense in a country with as many needs as we have? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right there. And I've been hearing this a lot over the last couple of weeks. We must spend on productive expenditure. And and what people implicitly are saying are there is that, you know, catering to human rights is not productive. And I find that very, very problematic in a country like this, right? Because I think ultimately we have to think of it this way. We have the constitution, which is the supreme law of this country, right? And as the supreme law of this country, the economy is supposed to serve the people and the constitution and not the other way around. The people are not here to serve this economy for economy's sake. And I think then what happens is that people say that we are just fighting for spend for spending sake. That's not true, right? Because there are real economic benefits to spending in this current moment. So I think that there's a lot of contestation happening there. And I think it really starts with this, what is this economy for? And I think most economists really think that the economy is just for economy's sake and everything must just function to for growth. And that's not enough because you can have jobless growth, you can have unequal growth, which is what we're experiencing in South Africa, right? And then you have to ask yourself, and then what, right? And also just the political implications. Like people forget how social grants in a way play a huge role in state legitimacy in South Africa, and we don't talk about that enough, right? We don't talk about how the political, economic, social elements all matter in a real way. And they're all like a puzzle. And you can't just pick and choose which part of the puzzle you want at any given time. So are you saying that social grants buy votes? Maybe. <laughs> Busi, um, you were talking about the objectives of economic policy. I think there's a perception that the objective should be to balance the budget. But I was listening to Stephanie Kelton who's just released a book called The Deficit Myth, and she says the objective of economic policy is not to balance every bu any budget. The objective is to balance the economy, to make sure that there's a reducing unemployment, poverty, and inequality. Can you just explain what that means? Absolutely. I think, you know, the, the whole balance of payments, you know, which is like an old argument. I don't know how to break that down, actually. But just to say that that was a big thing in the 1980s. Enter the IMF and the World Bank. That was the big thing. That's what the IMF does, right? It's about balance of payments. You know, everything must be equal to each other. It's almost like a zero-sum game, right? That's what it really is. And that was the big effort that the IMF did. And that's what led to the last decade in Africa, right? Those policies, those very regressive policies, actually, we can reflect back and say that now, right? And those have been, we can see them now. There are countries now that have been cutting healthcare expenditure so much. And we are in a current crisis and the IMF and the World Bank just said, oops, we shouldn't have done that over time, you know? And so I think that's the thing. And, to, to, and I think this goes back, what you're asking goes back to this question of how much debt is too much debt, because there's this clearly this obsession about too much debt is bad, you know? And yes, we countries have gone bankrupt in the past, but South Africa is not there. And there isn't a number. I can't sit here and tell you 100% is too much debt. 100% is the share of GDP is too much debt. So I do, I do agree that I think we need to rethink and reimagine what we think the economy is, what government expenditures role is. What is a, what is the role of stimulatory spending? What is treasury's role? Actually, that's the bottom line. What is treasury's role in South Africa today? 
And and I think we need to forget. It's almost like you have to block out everything that we've ever known and just say, what does South Africa need? What can Treasury do? And how do we get there? The question of Treasury's role in recent history has also been interesting because to an extent, uh, it sometimes feels that National Treasury is making policy as opposed to just signing the checks to use an old-fashioned sort of concept. Now, you mentioned, for instance, the IMF and the World Bank and the structural adjustment policies. One of the things that for me is perplexing is the fact that bad economic advice, which leads to uh, impoverization, hunger, starvation, there's no accountability. So you, as you say, you say, oops, that was a bad sort of decision. That was bad advice. That was a bad condition to the money that we give you to do what we want you to do. Now, that, that again takes me back to the question of justification. And I think what we need to be looking at in terms of social activism is the use of courts to try and bring government to justify the kinds of decisions that they're making, well, National Treasury to justify the kinds of decisions we're making. So we know, for instance, that there's a lot of discussion around a basic income grant. There has been historically, but specifically now in the COVID moment, how do you get money into poor households? By the same token, we know that the special COVID grant that was announced of 350 per person who is eligible, which is an ever-decreasing number compared to the huge number of unemployed people, one of the reasons given by SASA for the delayed implementation of the payments is that National Treasury has not given them the, the, the budget. So you have policy announced by the president for the Ministry of Social Development, which is effectively stopped by National Treasury. Now, I think that relates directly to austerity because it seems that there's this shadowy presence, which is Treasury, which manages to squeeze down the vision of the state. So, for instance, in the last budget, we know that uh, line departments were told you have to cut by X percent. Now, that doesn't say what are your needs, what is your vision. It's like blanket across the board. Um, and, and so your, vision, your, your, your question of can we, can we think of a new way of looking at monetary allocation and and um, and the needs of people is is a fascinating one, and I think it's it's something that it's a it's a new frontier for many of us to imagine, including the courts. And I think we need to be very comfortable with the fact that that's where we're going to be having to go quite shortly. Absolutely, I think the the most important thing right now in South Africa, especially in the context of the of Treasury introducing zero based budgeting, is that we really we have never costed human rights. Right. So if you don't have a baseline, <laughs> there's no way you can say how much you actually truly need. And I think in rethinking the role of Treasury, it doesn't mean if we cost human rights that we can, quote unquote, afford everything right now immediately. Right. Like it doesn't mean that all that money is going to happen tomorrow because we know the need is large in South Africa. We know that. Right. But at least if you have a baseline and, and I think that would really help in terms of that court. Um, aspect of it, right? Because if we know South Africa needs X billion to be able to achieve quality education on a yearly basis or in 10 years time or whatever it is, then we can say Treasury is only allocating X amount and they're actually decreasing it per year because we need it to be increasing with inflation. So these two things don't, you know, relate to each other. And I think that's going to be a big role that civil society could play in South Africa. And, I've, and, and actually in one of the papers that I was doing earlier last year was how other countries have done this. And there are civil society organizations in other countries that have costed a particular element and said, my expertise are in women's you know, right to reproductive health. And we're going to cost what that would mean for South Africa. I mean, or whatever country this was. And we're going to tell government how much we need, basically. And I think that can be a key role that civil society can play between now and October, ideally, uh, because that's when the zero-based budgeting is going to be happening. To move on a bit, we are now in this crisis. It's the worst crisis in a century. Most economists expect the economy to tank by about 10%. Um, some of the forecasts are more than 10%. In our last episodes, we had Owen Wilcox, who was saying the output gap between what GDP was at the end of December 2009 and what it will be is about a trillion rands. And so in economic terms, you have to fill that output gap. 
the stimulus must be exactly equal to the shock to the economy. So against that, what is your analysis of the February and June budgets and the 500 billion rand stimulus package that was announced on the 21st of April? You did an excellent presentation that I listened to, um, summarizing all the issues. I, I don't know where you want to start with this one, but can we just... Um, so because if you look at the design of the international COVID stimulus packages. There were about $11 trillion, according to the IMF. That is 13% of world gross domestic product. And about half of them were above the line expenditure that goes through the national budget. But if you look at our one, we had 36 billion rand increase in non-interest expenditure, which was only 0.7% of GDP. So maybe you can just explain the problems that the Budget Justice Coalition and the IEJ had with these um, three critical responses by the government over the past four months. Absolutely. I think the first thing I was uh, just as you were saying that it was very important to note that one of the indicators of austerity is actually the failure of um, the policies to close the gap between the country's possible GDP and what is the actual GDP. And I think right now this is the perfect moment, right? I, I definitely think we're in a moment of fiscal stinginess, um, which is a, a byproduct of austerity. If you are in an austerity mindset, then your response will not speak to the needs, right? So if we expect um, GDP to drop by 10%, our response package should be 10%. Our government says the response package is 10%. But we know that's not true, right? Because first of all, a 500 billion package was announced to, to as a relief measure. So let's there's a di difference between a relief measure and a stimulus, first of all, right? That's a really important point that right? you just made. Yeah, yeah, the relief package is supposed to preserve the economy. This is what Treasury says on like in the budget. It says they're trying to preserve the economy. But you can't preserve the economy if you fail, one, to implement no matter how, what the size of your stimulus pack or relief package is, if you fail to implement that in a timely manner, you've already failed, right? And therefore, we're going to need a stimulus to be able to overcome this failure to have implemented this relief package. Then you look at the different parts, and I'll try to break it down without going too long. But just to say, for instance, there was 100 to 200 billion for the loan guarantee scheme. Right. And when the budget was announced, the supplementary budget was announced, only 10 billion had been given out. This was 100 days after COVID lockdown began. There's no way that's a relief package. It's way too late. We're late. Right. When we look at the social grants across board, right, specifically the one for the unemployed, it took so long to implement. And even then they said it had only been given out to 1.5 million. And then a week later, there were the reports that people had been excluded um, for the wrong reasons. First of all, they were trying to exclude people, which is problematic to begin with. You know, Isabel's already spoken about this. And then second of all, now they're realizing that there's this major flaw. There are people sitting 100 days in without income. Right. So that's another element. The other part is you are in a pandemic, a health pandemic, and you only increase your health care vote by two point nine billion. I don't know. That doesn't make sense at all. Like, let's just let's just leave it there. Right. It doesn't make sense at all because we know what our health care system is. Our health care system was failing before. It's going to continue failing now. Right. And two point nine billion does really doesn't do much to address the current needs, right? And then on top of that, we're building field hospitals and not upgrading the infrastructure as we should be. COVID, post-COVID, the field hospitals won't be there. We'll still have crumbling hospitals, right? So, so there are those things where I think what you were saying about justification as well is very important because I think what we fail to see in this supplementary budget is the lack of treasury to say, look, we have cut this money because... You know, we generally do not think buildings are happening or whatever it is, right? And we think this is the way forward and this is how it will help in the long run. There's a lot of short-run thinking um, in the budget cuts um, as we see, right? And across the board, I think that generally if you were to calculate what that $500 billion became, it's not what was announced. It's really defaulted on what the president had announced. And on top of that, when we look at the overall budget, the net increase is only 36 billion, which is less than 1% of GDP. That is not a stimulus. Like, let's, let's, <laughs> let's end it there. It's not a stimulus. Duma, were you uh, in the last episode beginning to unpack the impact 
of the lack of sufficient stimulus in the economy. Um, based on what Witsi's been saying now, what are your concerns about the lack of sufficient stimulus expenditure? Busi, the issue of the debt, the finance minister put on a show of what I would call scaremongering about the level of debt. At the end of March, before the lockdown, our debt-to-GDP ratio was 63%. Net debt-to-GDP was 58%. There is no universe in which that is a high number. And the, for example, India was 70%, Brazil was 88%, Egypt was 93%, Angola was 81%. Mozambique was 111. So what's going to happen after this crisis, the IMF says, is that every single country will have an increase in their debt-to-GDP ratio of 19 percentage points. And we are going to have exactly the same. So just make us understand what is the purpose of the scaremongering about debt because every country has had the same shock to the economy and we're going to be in the same position as every other country on a relative scale. <laughs> I think... That's a very important point to raise. I think the first one is to acknowledge that debt is always the vehicle through which austerity is moralized globally, right? This is kind of the research that's written in that austerity paper. It's about this idea, and, and you're seeing this now, right, that we have to share the cost as society to get rid of this debt, you know, and and it's just a small cost for now. And in the long run, everything will be prosperous and great. And these short run, you know, hits that poor people, women in particular, are the ones who bear the costs for. In the long run, everything will be great and we would have forgotten about how painful it was in the short run. But that's not how it really works, first of all, right? So I think that's that's the thing about debt. It's, it's always been, and, and I was joking, half joking with my friend to say, it's so funny how like last year, budget, February budget, it was, it was ESCOM. ESCOM was the debt. ESCOM was the main reason why we need to cut debt. You know, it's a crisis that's happening. And with different budgets, there's a different debt, you know, reasoning, right? Like it changes. This is why, you know, this can't be real, right? Like it can't be that debt changes depending on the moment. Now it's COVID debt. Now it's, you know, it's, that's not how it works. Right. And I think it's very problematic how this is being continuously framed. And because people know debt, I think that's the thing. It, 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 people understand debt. If you are in debt as a person in your household, you understand debt. You understand the burden of debt. So the way that you mobilize that and create this direct linkage to people's households, people understand that. And then they're obviously afraid, right? But that's, as you've already stated, that's not how the budget works. But the other thing I think we need to con we continuously forget to do is sometimes when we look at the South African economy, we look at it as a, an anomaly. We don't look at it in the global framework of what's happening. We don't think about, we don't question what are the structural issues that are causing countries to be so indebted. That's actually the bottom line, right? Like if everyone is going to have bad debt after this, what is the structural macro global intersectional ways in which this is being reproduced. Why are we going into a debt crisis globally is a key question that we have to answer. And I think then you think of it, the struggle is not just about South Africa and our debt in a, in a domestic format, but it's to relate to why is debt. And I mean, we know in Africa, the debt issue with the IMF and, you know, debt relief and so forth, but that's also another structural issue of neoliberalism, right? So, I do think that this is a moment where we have to think not just local, and I think that's what Treasury is doing. They are thinking very local, but I think we need to think local and global. We need to think continuously how do these structures reinforce each other to reproduce inequalities, to reproduce patriarchy, capitalism, um, white supremacy, all these things. Like We have to think both ways um, and not just one way and think that's the solution to it all. One of the questions that I have to ask to the two of you is, I know that my debt earns interest for my lending bank. So in terms of the debt that we're talking about, who's getting enriched? It's actually, you know, it's very interesting because when you look at South Africa's debt, so 100%, right? 10% is foreign lenders, actually. South Africa's debt, it's, it's hard to believe. I know it's really weird because everyone thinks of South Africa's debt as like we owe everyone in dollars and foreign currency and so forth. But we're actually very lucky to not have so much foreign, you know, currency debt. The people who are actually earning more are probably the wealthy of South Africa. You know, if I can sit here and be like, who are the people who buy government bonds? Who are the people getting the yields? They are wealthy South Africans, right? It, in, in, its, in a way, the debt is also reproducing 
the wealth inequality in our country. It's reproducing the income inequality in our country because South Africa's yields are actually way higher than they should be. They're higher than other emerging market countries. So people who in you know get government bonds are actually walking away with a pretty good deal at the cost of our government and at the cost of the fiscus and at the cost of the country, right? So that's I'd say that's how I'd answer it. Busi, um, I think we can talk about the design of a fiscal stimulus package. You guys did a lot of work on how a, a fiscal stimulus package should be designed. And if I look at um, the global packages, um, there was distribution between households, employees, and companies. So if you look at the distribution within that, I looked at the Malaysian one. So the Malaysian one, 50% went to companies. That's the first thing. The majority of the global stimulus packages, sorry, not went to households, not companies. So the majority of global stimulus packages went to households. The second thing uh, is that most of the countries in Asia are on their third stimulus packages. So ours was late. So what we saw in Singapore, in Malaysia, they had one stimulus package in February, then another one, then another one, and the same in South Korea. So you guys said you must go fast, you must go early, you must go household. Please explain what that means. Absolutely. I think, first of all, the Asian countries are the ones we should be looking for. And I know people are going to say we're not like the Asian economies, but they've really gone through a lot of crises. And so they've learned how to recover. And the reason why they recovered after the 2008-9 global financial crisis is because they learned from their crisis in the late 90s. So they were able to adjust and knew how to respond in a way that would help the economies. And so they've learned. And I think this is where you you question whether people learn, you know. And I've been working on my fiscal stimulus paper, um, which should be published soon. And one of the things is that the go big, go early, go household. Because the the reality is that when there's a shock to the system, you really need a well-targeted, a speedy stimulus quickly because if you're late then your stimulus doesn't do what it's supposed to do right and also you you that's why you have to go early and the 100 days in for a relief package we're not even talking stimulus yet right we're talking relief package preserve we failed to preserve already right and so that's very important and go big right like and so some people say it has to be as big as how much your gdp growth um or gdp is supposed to contract by some people might have different measures it might be higher if you look at the Asian economies in 2008-9, they actually put way more than what the economy was going to drop by. So they really went big. They were like, we're going to, you know, spend what we can to save this current moment and preserve our economies and hopefully help them. And I think the goal household is very important because what we understand in economics, or some of us understand, because some people wouldn't agree, is that people spend money and particularly people of lower incomes spend money in an economy that's kind of coming to a standstill, guess what the rich people do? They save their money. They invest their money in financial markets, right? They're not there to spend at your shop rights to make sure that, you know, the person working there gets paid, to make sure that the production system still happens. They, you know, and, and we know about this about social grants in South Africa in particular is that people who are grant earners have a higher marginal propensity to consume. So they consume most of their money. And they actually really, really help the domestic market, right? Because obviously with higher incomes, people can import their nice cars, you know, and all that stuff. But people who get grants in this economy, you know, when we think about the informal economy, I always think of this, just bottom line, the informal economy. When we think about domestically produced goods, which are cheaper than imported goods, they are the ones who spend on those. And that's why going household actually helps the economy. Because if people spend enough on the domestic market, then it really props up the economy. So, yeah, so that's that's what I'd say um, we've really failed to do. I mean, you can imagine even the social relief grant was a huge fight and struggle, and which shouldn't be the case if anyone understands economics and demand and marginal propensity to consume. But so just following up on that, so we heard recently that the job loss is actually worse than was anticipated, and it will continue to be as we move into the impact of this crisis. You've just been answering the question, why go household? Now, what would be your recommendation in the face of an ever-decreasing amount of income going into the household? Is this ripe for government to increase um, transfers to household? 
Absolutely. I think the first thing, I mean, there's obviously conversation about a basic income grant. As you've already said, it's not a new phenomenon. But if you're reaching that kind of level of unemployment, let's say 50% in the economy of South Africa, there's no other option out. Like, think about the political economy. Like, just think about stability in this country. Never mind anything else. I think sometimes people like to think high level, but the reality, think about the reality of people's lives and what that would mean for this country, for that many people to be unemployed and not have an income. I think people sometimes forget that when they think about policies and what the country needs. There's, there's a real reality. The material needs of people cannot be ignored. When material needs of people are ignored, there's never a good outcome, <laughs> right? So, and, and actually, you know, in so I think we need to think in that way, but also just protecting human rights is so important, right? Like, Truly living up to our constitution is so important. If we no longer think that's true, then then let's go back and rethink that. But for as long as we believe it to be true, which I believe it to be true, we have to uphold ourselves to that, right? And we have to ensure people have access to food, people have access to, you know, all the basic needs and and so forth. And so in South Africa, I think the, there's been some debate around a jobs guarantee versus a basic income grant, right? But the... And we all know that a jobs guarantee takes longer. There's no way. People are hungry now. Three million people have lost their jobs. There's no way you can implement jobs and proper jobs because we don't want people to also be doing jobs for the sake of jobs. Like, I'm really anti this idea that work should be the center of our lives and values as human beings, you know? So if we want people to just be there picking up papers just because, like... That's not that's not money well spent, even on the state's part, right? So I think a basic income grant would be the fastest way. And I think a universal basic income grant would even work better because, as we've seen, Sasa's inability to implement these different grants is showing us that state capacity is low. So I think we need to reimagine as well, what are the solutions given the state capacity constraints? Because I think we can come up with great ideas, but if there's no state capacity for it, it doesn't work, right? But I also think as civil society, as non-mainstream thinkers, we have to think bigger because I think continuously what happens in crisis is we get a part of what we've been arguing for all along. But times have changed, right? A basic income grant in 2003 of 100 Rand would have changed South Africa forever, right? But 2020, and then we're like, we need to think bigger. Like basic income grant maybe is not what we must aspire for anymore. We must be even, you know, at another level because it, it it won't be enough. Like, let's say 350 becomes the basic income grant. What is that? You know, so I think we have to dream bigger. And I think it's challenging. It's very hard work to do. But we have to. Like, there, there's really no other way. I was at a workshop at the presidency, I think more than once. Um, and everybody, the economists, are trying to tone down their proposals to make them affordable for the fixers. So they come up each time they say, okay, the government can't afford this. But what people don't understand is what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was saying, that you actually, there's no response that is too big. So what people are not understanding is that you actually need to go big, go not big to go, go small. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe we should explain that because what I'm saying is that the, if you don't go big, you're not solving the problem. So if you go small and you're trying to cut pennies, then you're, not, you're making the problem worse. So just from a public, me as an economist, I understand that, but the ordinary person may not understand it. And I would say, look at the number. We're talking about 500 billion rands for this basic income grant at the upper poverty line, 33 million people at 1,227. Now, it has economic development benefits. So just maybe talk about the go big part of it and why it's so important in a response to a crisis as deep as this one. Absolutely. I, you know, I think to an ordinary person, I'd say you want to buy a car and you've got this car that's like secondhand and really breaking apart, or you could buy a new car. You can afford both. Let's start there. The baseline is you can afford both and you can decide I'm going to buy this brand new car because it's going to last me for longer. Or I'm going to buy this car that's really not functioning well and I'm going to spend a lot of money later on. Right. So maybe it might not be this year, but later on, because it's old and it's already crumbling, it's going to cost me so much more money in the long run to fix it. 
I think this is the car analogy. I mean, I don't own a car, but I do know that people will say sometimes if you get a secondhand car, it costs you more to fix it than actually if you've just bought a new car to begin with. And that's where we are in South Africa. We've got a broken car. I've got a broken car. And we can choose. And that's why fiscal stimulus is important. And in the paper that I'm writing now, it's about we need to use a fiscal stimulus to structurally transform the economy at the bottom line. We need to like change our economy. We need to pave a green new deal. We need to invest in the care economy. We need like we actually need to like structurally change it, not just reform it. And structural reform, as we know from Treasury, is code and like it's code for we just need to do neoliberalism better. We we've done it for the last twenty six years, but we can do it better and then we'll get different results. But that's not how it works, you know? We have to really reimagine and structurally transform our economy. And I think that's that's really what it is. It's to say that basic income grants have impacts on investment in our economy. They've got impacts on the domestic economy. And it's very important that people have income for the economy to work because economies work when people spend, right? An economy is basically, actually an economy is a set of rules, but <laughs> but on the other end is that economies work when people spend. There's no economy in the world where no one doesn't spend and sits at home and the economy works. That's not how it works. So Bussy, it seems that we're looking at two criticisms of austerity. The one is we are facing uh, an ability to meet human rights, which in terms of constitutional obligations on the state, as well as humanity, but also developmental impetus is a big negative. It's a big failure. And that's looking in sort of long term trajectory if you look back since 1994. But then we're also, that's, that's been completely highlighted by the fact that we now are in the face of a global pandemic, an unprecedented crisis, and yet we're still talking about fiscal discipline and the, needing, and, and the need to, to, to be planning for the future, and yet we don't even know what this future is going to be. So there's a double layer at the questionability of the rationality of the adoption of austerity. In your paper, which was published or written, before COVID, what were some of the recommendations that you were making to policymakers and the ways making decisions as to what would be a much more rational policy than austerity? So, of course, we were, even at that time, and that's why this paper that's coming, it actually speaks to the pre-COVID moment, although there are clear lessons that we can learn, right? But part of it was to say that you need to reverse austerity. And the reversal of austerity is not just to say from tomorrow we're going to spend more, slightly more at inflation rate. It's to say that we need a proper assessment of the impacts austerity has had in South Africa. What have been the impacts on the economy? What have been the impacts on women, on children, on everyone, right? Like we have to have a, a human rights assessment of what austerity has done. You can't fix what you don't know has happened, right? Because then what you're doing is you, you're half doing it, right? So that's the one thing. The other thing, obviously, we would have said is that we needed to structurally transform our economy yesterday, not today. <laughs> today is, we need it now. But if we had done this prior to, you know, if we were fixing these things prior to the COVID moment, and it's not to say by COVID everything would have been resolved, but these were things we were supposed to be doing anyway. That was one of the things, right? But to also say, you need to increase, and, and with the UN recommendations, actually, the Committee of Social and Economic Rights, um, they did say that South Africa has the ability to immediately realize some of the human rights that we had flagged as issues um, that South Africa is doing. And even that, that committee said South Africa is implementing austerity unnecessarily. And that committee has a, a framework for why or when you should be able to implement regressive policies. It should be time, it's, you know, there's time constraints. It shouldn't be regressive. It shouldn't be discriminatory. I don't think Treasury today can tell you the impacts of their budget, actually ever. But I don't think they can tell you this is how the budget impacts normal people on an everyday basis. So yes, they're signing the checks, but at the end of the day, I don't think there's been due diligence done on what those checks are supposed to do and what they actually do. And now, we, now we're getting this conversation about wasteful expenditure and how state expenditure makes no difference and so forth. But at the same time, I ask myself, and I think what's really missing is accountability in this conversation continuously. It's as if 
Treasury just woke up and decided after 20, you know, 10 years, wow, expenditure is not working. <laughs> and all this time, I think to myself, why haven't they been doing this work anyway? They talk about zero-based budgeting and how we need to justify programs. But why haven't pro- programs been justified anyway? You know, th- these are kind of the functions that they externalize the failure. Treasury is externalizing its failure to the people, to government, and the people who are bearing the costs are the people on the ground, right? If your governor sucks, you're the one who has to to bear the cost because that program is going to be cut. You're the one who doesn't get access to water because someone is corrupt in your municipality. That's not fair, you know, because it's externalizing the failure to the people who are not the ones who are responsible for it to begin with. We see my last question. It's we obviously have to do more than just the basic income grant to, as you say, fundamentally transform society. So if you look at our public transport, that we have to redo the whole public transport system, we have to redo our national health service. And I did some numbers that if you want to achieve two thirds of the per capita spending in the private sector, that would cost 300 billion rands a year. So we've got massive needs as a country. But um, I think, you know, I was in China twice over the past uh, few years um, on study tours. And the Chinese understand that if you spend today, it's got second round and third round impacts on the economy. So we mustn't look at this thing from an accountancy point of view, because when they started building this um, high-speed rail train, they weren't thinking about how much it is going to cost. And once you travel on it, you realize it's got such amazing second round and third round impacts on the economy. So in economist language, that's called a multiplier. Just explain the concept of a multiplier because when you spend one rand, you get 150 back and two rands back, which helps pay for itself. Yeah, Absolutely. I think a well-spent fiscal stimulus would pay for itself, right? Because it would have employment effects. Usually fiscal multipliers are, you know, just a measurement, like you're saying, like what are the impacts besides I've spent this one rand and it's spent, Right. So if, for instance, we take social grants as an example, would say we spent one rand and this person spent one rand to do X and another person benefited from this because, you know, someone bought a tomato in the informal economy. Then this informal economy trader stocked with that one rand, you know, from a farmer and that farmer was able to do X, right? Like it's to say that, you know, the money is not just one rand spent as one rand lost. That's not how it works, right? Like it has many ways that it should impacts. And I do agree that there's a lot of short-term thinking and that's why zero-based budgeting works in Treasury's favor because it, it favors short-term thinking, you know? Like what is the cost benefit over the next two years, one year? as opposed to long-term thinking. There are programs that need to run for years and zero-based budgeting is a yearly function for the most part, you know? So we're going to lose out on that long-term thinking about projects. And I, and I agree that I think you can also build state capacity with a fiscal stimulus, right? So when we think about things like community healthcare workers, those people deserve permanent jobs and living wages. <laughs> that's, that's from me at least, Right. And that's building state capacity because we know that there are no doctors in some rural areas and community healthcare workers do that function. They are the capacity at that level, you know? So I think in many ways, yeah, the, the fiscal multiplier argument, and you saw that, you know, Treasury believes it's near zero, which is like impossible. There's no way. <laughs> and, and you know what I think is interesting? Treasury used to publish the multipliers of South Africa in the budget. And they've stopped doing so. And I think we need to ask them, between 2012, when you posted this, and now, what has happened? And why are we not getting this information anymore? Where's the transparency? Where's the accountability? Right? Because you can't just come back a couple of years later and say government expenditure makes no difference. That, First of all, that's just impossible. <laughs> that's just impossible. Even if we were to think about it, I mean, I come from the school of Mushtaq Khan's corruption theories to say, even if the money is spent in corrupt ways, depending on how those people spend that money, there can still be high multiplier effects. So there's no way you can come and say that that money was lost. Poof, in the air, it's gone. I spent one rand and now there's only zero. God, like that, that doesn't make sense. I think 
we really strongly need to challenge this this idea that the fiscal multiplier of South African government spending is close to zero because it's simply untrue. And I think, you know, Treasury accused the BJC of empirically misleading Parliament. I think this is the 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 real empirical misleading, and that they use one model to decide this, right? Like, I don't understand in what world where you are responsible for 59 million people, right? And you decide as an economist, even I as economists know, no model's perfect, right? <laughs> and you believe that one model is enough to tell you that government spend doesn't work. I mean, even if you look at the UNCTAD um, last year's report, they say 1.47. Across different studies, you see that it's over one. I don't think there are many studies in South Africa that say South Africa's fiscal multiplier is below one even. And I think the danger to that is that Austerity makes sense if you genuinely, genuinely think there's negative multipliers. If you believe that strongly, then maybe austerity might work. But even then, it's like might. <laughs> there's no guarantee. But if your stimulus is a, if your if your fiscal multipliers are is above one, then you're actually going to reduce your GDP by whatever fiscal multiplier you have in your economy, right? You implement austerity and our fiscal multiplier. Use the UNCTAD example right now, one point four seven. We're going to see our economy shrink by that. And I think it's very problematic. And I don't think Treasury is engaging people. I've been, you know, following the conversation and it's continuously the same argument. The fiscal multiplier is close to zero. Debt is too high. That's why we need austerity. But there's no genuine engagement. There's no justification, which is Isabel's already raised. There's no justification. This is our model. You know, we are willing to be shown if it's wrong. Because if they are wrong, the cost is massive. And I don't think this is something to be taken lightly. And in fact, I'd respect Treasury more if they came and said, we were wrong, but we're willing to change our ways now because we understand the human cost. But if we, if they're going to, it's almost like a pride thing. <laughs> it's like you can't let your pride down. You can't say you're wrong. But then the thing and the, constant, the continuous question should always be, what is the cost of not doing what we're supposed to do? Really, that's where we are in South Africa. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.